Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. This week, I had the privilege of going to a Gospel Coalition gathering with some other Twin Cities pastors, and one of the co-pastors pointed, uh, he posted this picture on Facebook after we were together. He had taken this picture, and it represents six generations of church plants and churches here in the Twin Cities. Starting with 170 years ago, First Baptist Church was planted as the first church on the, on the west side of the Mississippi in Minneapolis, and it has become River City Church over the last few years. Jeremy Edelman pastors that church currently. That church planted what's known as Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis. Bethlehem Baptist Church planted Hope Community Church in downtown Minneapolis. The planting pastor of that church, Steve Treichler, is in this picture Hope Community Church planted Antioch Community Church 15 years ago. And then 10 years ago, myself and Ben and our wives, Jenny and Brittany and a few others, we launched out of Antioch Community Church and started what was then called City Vision Church. In fact, that was 10 years ago, this day, Sunday evening, we had our first worship gathering in this building with about 25 people. Over the years, that became Park Community Church. Amen. Praise God for that. And then today, we get to launch Matt and Grafted Community Church out of our church. So six generations of churches here in the Twin Cities. Here's a little brochure of our church plant back in the day, 2012, 2013, as we were starting. That's uh, my wife, Brittany, and I up at the top with my daughter, Avery. That's Ben and Jenny and their family, Ellie, Claire, and Bjorn. And uh, so that's kind of the front of this little brochure that we gave out and tried to recruit people with. And then here's the backside of it that had our values. Building community is one that I want to highlight this morning. We said, building loving, authentic relationships that are centered in Jesus Christ. We desire to give our city a vision of God by expressing God's design for diversity to be lived out in communal unity. Uh, We seek to be an active, growing, and life-giving community that reflects the reality of who Jesus is to the world around us. Now, this brochure has a lot of ignorance and arrogance in it. Ignorance about what St. Louis Park needs, what are their idols, what are their joys, what are their strengths, and a lot of arrogance about what we have to offer. Any missionary, any church planter, any evangelist, most of us, we often live with a certain level of ignorance and arrogance. And so I'm trying to remind myself and encourage other pastors and missionaries to figure out what is your ignorance and arrogance. Yes, God has called us and will use us to do mighty things for him, immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. But we have to begin to identify our own ignorance and arrogance about the communities that we're trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. So the last 10 years has been a a, a growth process in what are our ignorances, what are our arrogances, and the next 10 years will surely be filled with the same. But mixed in with our ignorance and arrogance was willingness and, and some reluctant, also some zealous obedience. Depends on the day, right? Sometimes our obedience to Jesus is zealous. We're ready to go. We're willing. Other times it's reluctant and slow. And all of this is kind of baked in together. But what we've learned over the last 10 years, as I shared last week from Kurt Thompson, is that community isn't found, it's made. So when Brittany and I moved here 11 years ago, and then we started City Vision Church 10 years ago, one of our values was to build a community. We moved here knowing nobody And we had to build community to make community. And this takes time and effort. It comes with trial and error. But 10 years later, I can attest to you that it's worth it. Over the last two to three years, so many pastors have either quit the ministry 
or have left their current churches or ministries for other opportunities, greener pastors, right? And I want to tell you that I'm here today. Brittany and I are here today because you are our people. This is our community. We love this church. We love this community, but it takes time and work and effort. And this community, Park Community Church, is truly immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. And we're excited to see what God does in the 10 years ahead as we consider what he's done in the 10 years behind us. This morning, we're going to pivot back into the Gospel of John. We were in the Gospel of John for much of the spring, uh, and then we in through some of the summer, we paused on it, did a couple weeks on the Psalms, and now we're coming back into the Gospel of John. We're picking it up in John 13. So John 1 through 12 is kind of a unit where Jesus is walking with his disciples and going from city to city, doing a ton of miracles and, and proclaiming the gospel. And then in John 13 through 17, Jesus is going to have an intimate conversation with his disciples where he is kind of solidifying this community of love that he has been building. And so we're going to look at that over the coming weeks and months. We're going to camp in John chapter 13 through 17. Today we're going to be in John chapter 13, 1 through 20. So I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for this morning. It's on page 900 in the Pew Bible. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, as a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would illuminate this passage to us. Help us to understand your greatness, your glory, your goodness. 
and the type of life that you call us to in you and the type of community that you call us to in you and then the type of community that you call us to shape and create with your power for your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to spend the next next couple weeks looking at John 13. And so today I wanted to read verses 1 through 20 to kind of get a little bit more of the context, but we're going to zero in on verses 1 through 11. But in order to zero in on 1 through 11, I want to point out verse 15 and 17. So Jesus does this amazing thing, washing the disciples' feet, which we'll talk about what the significance and meaning of that is as we go. But look at verse 15. He says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Verse 17, if you know these things, these things that he's taught, these things that he's shown, these things that he has modeled for us, if you know these things, and again, this word knowledge, knowing in the scripture, it's more than just a head knowledge. It's more than just interpreting rightly the things that he has said. It's an experience of who Jesus is. If you know me, if you know what I teach, if you know how I live, if you know my ethic, Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus has this idea here, this teaching here, that we ought to follow his example. And so as we look at John 13, this morning I specifically want to look into the example that Jesus sets for us. Now, we're going to talk about this at the end. We can't perfectly follow Jesus' example. That's why we need him as a sacrifice as well. That's why every Sunday when we gather at Park Community Church, we come to the table to be reminded that we are not saved by our ability to follow Jesus' example. Right? We are justified. We are made right by Jesus doing what we are incapable of doing and often just unwilling to do. However, that doesn't give us a free pass to then just go do whatever we want. Jesus says, if you, if you know me, if you know the things that I've taught, if you know how I live, you ought to imitate it. And blessed are those, as he says in verse 7, who does what I do. Blessed are you if you do what I do. And so this morning, I want to look at some ways that Jesus builds community, a community of love in this text, and talk about what it would look like for us to imitate him. So we're going to look at five different things that Jesus does in this text. This isn't a comprehensive list. Jesus did far more than five things to build a community of love. You and I ought to do far more than five things to build a community of love. But there's five specific things that are happening here in this text that I think are essential for how Jesus built a community of love. And as so in, in the context of the book of John, this is the last two days of Jesus' life. So John 13 through 17, it's this intimate conversation and interaction that he has with his followers right before he goes to the cross. And so here in this setting, they're in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. We're going to talk about Judas next week. And, you know, we read some confusing verses about Judas. We'll get into him next week. We'll kind of compare Judas and Peter's response to Jesus and get into some more theology of what's happening here in this text next week. What I want to do this week is just, again, look at the example that Jesus made community, number one, drum roll, by eating. Amen? How many of you like food? How many of you like food too much? Okay. You don't have to put your hand up for that one. Look at it with me. Verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, the feast of the Passover is what we celebrate in communion. It's hearkening back to the Exodus when God's people, Israel, were in Egypt and and God was going to deliver them from Egypt. And the night before he sent the angel of death 
Remember, he told them to put blood over the doorpost so that he would spare their firstborn, that he would pass over those homes. Those homes represented people who trusted God's word and command. They didn't know everything about God. They simply trusted enough to put blood on the doorpost so that their home would be passed over. And then as Pharaoh got angry and sent the Egyptians out, they were set free from slavery in Egypt. This is the Passover. This is the Seder. Some of you came to the Seder this last spring when we were with Matt, and it's this long, drawn-out meal. And Jesus here is in Jerusalem to celebrate the customary festival, the Feast of Passover. And it's not insignificant that much of Jesus's ministry in the New Testament is around food with people. Consistently, Jesus's teachings and miracles center around food. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and so there's a ton going on in this text, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that once again, Jesus is eating with his beloved disciples. Church family, if we want to imitate Jesus and build a community of love like Jesus, it involves eating with others. I said this last week, and I want to keep saying it again and encouraging you that if you want to make Park Community Church your home and make community here at this church, you're going to have to take some initiative to have meals with other people. And I don't mean like sit around and wait like, well, no one's invited me over for a meal or out for a meal. That that would be really nice, right? Like, it's nice to receive an invitation. Church family, we want to be people who give invitations. But if you're the person who hasn't yet received an invitation for a meal, for a coffee, for connecting with another person, maybe it's time for you to start praying and thinking through, maybe I need to take the initiative of inviting someone to my home, to my, imp- to my apartment, to going to Caribou or Starbucks or somewhere with them to get to know them. And in this space, Ask questions. Get to know the person. Don't make judgments. Have a long and lingering meal or drink with another person. That's what Jesus is doing here. The Passover, it's not a quick meal. It's nothing like our celebration of communion. A teeny little cracker and a small little cup of juice. It involved multiple dishes and courses. It involved multiple glasses of wine. It involved reclining at table, which is going to be important when we talk about foot washing. Reclining. They didn't, they didn't sit at a table like we're used to. They're literally laying next to each other like this. I'm going to break my microphone. Laying next to each other like this, eating. And so the next person's feet are right by my head. So we're going to talk about foot washing and how that's significant to this scene. But this is how they eat a meal together. They're lingering together. They're with each other. They're seeing each other eye to eye, face to face. They're smelling each other's feet. Praise the Lord, Jesus cleaned those feet. So this is one of the things that we see Jesus doing. He's eating with his beloved community. If you want to help build a community of love, you need to eat with others. Number two, Jesus models loving. Verse 13, For before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, so Jesus knows this, this is it. I'm heading to the cross. My entire purpose for living and for being here on this earth, this, this is culminating in my death and it's coming. And before my death, this is so significant what he does before his death is he has this long lingering meal with his disciples. He spends time in relational connection with the people that he loves. He doesn't go out and preach to the masses and like give one last altar call. 
And Jesus did plenty of that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to downplay doing that. But I do think it's significant that Jesus' last act here is to spend intimate time. I did break my thing laying down. That'll teach me to, does this still work? Are we on? Check, check, check. That'll teach me to lay down while I'm preaching. <laughs> Jesus here is, is spending these precious hours with his followers. So it says he knew that his hour had come, and then this is significant, the second part of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This word love here is agape. There's a couple different forms of love. And in the ancient Greek world, they thought of love a little bit more differently and holistically than us. Like we have one word love that applies to everything, right? Like you love your mom, you love your dad, you love your spouse, you love your kids, you love pizza, right? Like it doesn't quite, right? So in the Greek, ancient Greek world, they had words for like familial love. They had words for affectionate love. They had words for sexual love. And here, this word agape is for unconditional love. This type of love that a parent has towards a child. It's unconditional. It's not based on obedience. Now, parents, I know that our feelings about our kids and our feeling of love may rise and fall with their obedience or disobedience, right? Our emotions towards our children are fickle. However, parents, you know that this love is unconditional. It's not based on their obedience. Like even in the midst of disobedience, there's this love, this desire for good and for right and for reconciled relationship with your child. This is God's love towards us. When John records here that they're in this meal, they're having this feast together, Jesus is eating with them, says that Jesus, having loved his own, There's this relational connection and possession. Jesus is a bit possessive. He's jealous for his bride, for his people. And this is a good jealousy. It's a a jealousy. It's a type of love that, that doesn't say, well, I don't, if you're annoying to me, if you're yet disobedient to me, if you're slow to listen and slow to follow, I'm sick of it. I'm over you. I've got some other people who will do better. That's not how God loves us. God loves us with this unconditional, persistent love, with this affectionate love. Agape can also mean affection, like he looks at us and he smiles at us. Jesus, in this meal, he's sitting with his disciples, expressing his love. Love is more than a feeling, it's an action, but love also has some feeling. It it produces something in us, and God has that towards you. Jesus made community, and he continues to make community by having agape love for his own. So part of the question for us this morning is, am am I his? Have I surrendered my life to him? And, and, And there's various degrees of this, right? But are you willing to walk with him? Are you willing to receive his love? Are you willing to let him love you? And maybe you did that 30 years ago. You like made a decision, you prayed a prayer, maybe you need to be reminded that he's still consistently loving you with agape love, unconditional love, affectionate love. Agape can also mean a favoring type of love. Like, this may sound unchristian, and I haven't worked this out in my own head yet, and it's just coming to me in the moment, so take it for what it's worth, but I favor my kids over other kids. Right? Don't you all? You should. 
I mean, not, right? Like, I don't know, favoritism, the Bible calls us not to have favoritism, but there's, there's like a special love and care and attention that you have for your child and you want well for your child and you don't have the capacity, unlike God, you don't have the capacity to love everyone else equally. You, you have to show some favoritism towards your children. And in fact, this word agape, it's saying that God shows favoritism towards his kids. Now, this doesn't mean he doesn't love the non-believers, that, that he shows like favoritism in the eyes of the world, but it's that he has a special place in his heart for those who are his. John records this, having loved his own, there's this relational connection and possession. There's this relational knowledge. There's this relational like, favor that God has towards his kids. And so if you're in his family, be encouraged by that this morning. That God shows favor towards you. That, that's grace, right? Grace is undeserved favor. I think this is what it means when God shows favor towards us. It's not that he likes our personality more than someone else. It's not that, you know, like that's kind of favoritism. It, our favoritism often has to do with bias. God's favoritism doesn't have to do with bias. It has to do with the fact that he's poured his grace out upon us. Undeserved favor. And if you are his child, if you are God's son or daughter, he has agape love for you. And this is what he's building his community by and around, a community of agape love. He loves his own, and he loves his own to the end. He shows us this persevering love. Jesus made community by persevering. It says, having loved his own, we're still in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Jesus had this love for his followers in this setting and in this scene, but it continues now, right? This, Jesus is God in flesh, God on earth, showing us what God is like. The scriptures testify to the fact that when we see Jesus, when we follow his ethic and his ways through the scriptures, he's revealing to us God. He is the image of the invisible God. So when John records that Jesus loved his disciples until the end, what he's telling us is that God has this preserving love that remains until the end. The Old Testament talks about this, a steadfast love. A God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And many of us in our search for community, we give up too quick on others. And like we forget how much God has persevered with us in our own wandering, in our own failing, in our own lack of holiness. And God remains. This is the story of the scriptures. God being faithful and steadfast to his people, preserving until the end. And then you and I, we get in community with people and we get disappointed pretty quickly and we oftentimes pull out and we leave and we abandon relationships because they get hard. And if we want true, genuine, life-transforming, changing community like Jesus, there's this element of preserving and persevering with one another, right? We preserve something, a relationship, by persevering in it. And Jesus models that for us. There's this great quote in Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book called Life Together. And I think applies really well to not, not, not all of you, like some of you have been so persevering with this church. Thank you for your example. 
for following Jesus' example and then setting an example for us younger people to follow. Some of you have been around here for like 70 years and it has not been easy. You've persevered through a lot of trial and hardship and relational wreckage that happens in relationship, right? There's no perfect church. The longer you're at a church, the more that your warts are seen. You like how I put that on you? (laughs) And then the longer that you're at the church, the more you see other people's warts. It's just how life works. So there's no perfect community. Some of you have persevered here for ages, generation after generation after generation. Personally, from me, thank you for doing that. It's an amazing thing to know some of you and how you have persevered through trial and struggle. But back to Diedrich Bonhoeffer's quote in Life Together, he talks about this wish-dream idea of a church. He says, the person who loves their dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of that community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And I, I, I see this, I, I don't know if it's a generational thing. I've experienced it more in younger generations because some of the older generations, you've faithfully stuck it out year after year, generation after generation. But sometimes us younger generations, like we listen to a podcast or we read a book or we find another pastor that's saying the things that we want to hear, and then we get pretty critical of our community and our people, and we're like, well, why, don't, why doesn't my church do it like that church? Why doesn't my pastor say it like that pastor? Why doesn't my worship team act like that worship team or do those songs? Why don't the people that I'm in small group with, why aren't they different, right? Ever been there? We create these wish-dream communities, and Bonhoeffer wisely says the person who loves their dream of a community, their ideal, more than the actual community that God has put them in, will destroy that community. And oftentimes, what we do in our modern era where there's churches on every corner and there's podcasts on every icon, every app, and there's music anywhere, like we just kind of curate our own community, and we kind of have a smorgasbord community. And the call here that we're seeing in Jesus is this persevering characteristic. And I'm not saying, please don't hear me say that there's never a time and a place to leave a church or change communities or build new communities in new places. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is that we need to see this ethic in Jesus that he's persevering with his people. That love is the bridge that binds him to a group of people. Not style of music, not style of preaching, not programs offered, not the building. This this love for the people that he's with. And so if we want to build community like Jesus, a, 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 a community of love, agape love like Jesus, we need to take into account Jesus' persevering love. Ask yourself, where is God calling you to persevere? Maybe he's calling you to build and create new community here and just know up front it's going to require perseverance because people are annoying, including yourself. We, no, Chuck is not annoying, but I am, so he's going to have to persevere. And I will be annoyed with Chuck's last, whatever. Perseverance. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as a beautiful example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read it for us. It says, Love is patient, and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the character of love that Jesus had that he built his community on. And then remember, verses 13 through 17 of John chapter 13, he says, As you've seen me do, do likewise. Persevere with one another. Persevere with one another. Persevere with one another. Love until the end. The fourth thing that I see Jesus doing here, we're going to jump down to verse 3 on this now. Verse 2 is, is kind of an interesting verse. We'll come back to it next week. Like I said, next week we'll kind of look at the two characters in this story, Judas and Peter, and talk about some of what's going on with those two and how they respond to Jesus, why they respond to Jesus the way that they did. For now, jump down to verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, was going back to God. Here's a characteristic that I see here in Jesus of what helped him to build community is that he knew, he knew God's plan. Now, he had a unique relationship with God that, that you and I ought to imitate and follow and, 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 and work towards and that we, you know, he's done the work to build that relationship with us. But, you know, Jesus had a u- unique relationship where it says that, Verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, like Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him by the Father. So we can't fully have the same ethic that Jesus has of knowing. But I, but I think it's interesting here to note that Jesus has confidence in God's sovereignty and his imparted authority. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we actually have imparted authority from God, so we can know that, that God has given us all authority in heaven and on earth through his Spirit to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we're told by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 28. So Jesus, he knows God, right? Again, in knowing isn't just a head knowledge. He knows God deeply and intimately. He knows where he comes from, and he knows where he's going, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus was able to build community and to be with people with an extreme level of confidence because he knew God. He knew that he came from God, that he was the son of God, and he knew that he was returning back to God. Now think about this for ourselves. You and I can have a similar level of confidence. We can have a similar level of knowing. Community often tears down and it isn't built up when we let our insecurities get in the way. And when we let our our lack of trusting the gospel get in the way. Right? We're trying to prove ourselves to other people. We're trying to pr- prove that we have a certain level of righteousness and, and religiosity in us, or we're trying to cover up our sin. So I think we see here in Jesus this this reality that community is built around people, particularly a person, and we'll talk about how all of this breaks down if it all rests on us at the end. But particularly a person, Jesus, who knew who he was, knew where he came from, and knew where he was going. If you've ever been around a type of person who had the type of confidence, not cockiness, not arrogance, but confidence that I know who I am. Because I know what God thinks of me. I have nothing to lose and nothing to prove. I don't, I don't have to prove 
my relationship with God to you because I know what God says of me, that I am loved, that I'm his own. So you know who you are. You know where you came from. I've been born again, right? In John chapter 3, think about this level of confidence. John chapter 3, Nicodemus spends time with Jesus and Jesus calls him to be born again. And what if we are reminded consistently this knowledge this experience that we have of being born again. I don't have to be born again, again, and again, and again, and again. We're born again. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so I can interact with other people not trying to prove myself or not trying to get their approval or praise of who I am because I know who I am, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Amen? I can serve other people without worrying about the state of my salvation because I know I'm saved. And so we give out of an abundance of what we've already received. This is some of what Jesus is modeling for us. He knows God's goodness. He trusts God's plan. He trusts God's sovereignty and authority. He knows that he is of God and that he knows that he's returning to God. And so I encourage us, church family, as we seek to build community together, do you know who you are? In light of the gospel, Do you know where you came from? You're a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of God. Do you know where you're going? This future eternity with God, you have nothing to lose and nothing to prove. And so you can freely live in community and help to build community without accolades because you have it from God. And then lastly, as we kind of close out this look today, we're actually going to end at verse uh, 11 this morning. We'll, again, we'll get into 12 through 20 some more next week along with verse 2 and talk about Judas and Peter. But the last thing that we see Jesus doing here, and this is the ultimate thing that he's doing here in this text, is that he's serving. Jesus made community by serving others. Look at verse 4. It says, he, he rose from supper. So again, remember, they're laying down, eating supper. It says that he laid aside his outer garments... And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is an intimate moment. Community requires intimacy. I mean, for one, remember the scene. They're sitting there with each other, laying down, their head by their feet. And actually, most people believe that they already had their feet washed because you wouldn't come into this setting not having your feet washed. Like, remember, they, they live in the first century in and around Jerusalem. And so they're wearing sandals. They're walking on dusty roads. I talked to somebody who was in Jerusalem and they were like, you know, one thing that I never thought about until I went to Jerusalem is that they didn't have like public restrooms back in the day. What happens when you go to the bathroom on a dusty road? Splatter and dust. Their feet are dirty. That's my point, right? Their feet are dirty. And so you don't go into a dining room together, this intimate space where your head is right next to the person's feet without washing your feet. It's the equivalent, like in our day, right? You wash your hands before you eat. In their day, you wash your hands as well, but you also wash your feet. It's necessary. And so it's believed that they already had their feet washed when they're sitting here. But Jesus, as a sign and a symbol of how they are to serve one another, to set an example of how community is built and shaped around his type of love, he gets up from supper, he lays aside his outer garment. This, so he's taking now the posture of a servant. Not even Jewish slaves would wash the feet of the people at the 
dinner table was too low of a task. They would use Gentile slaves to do this task, the people that they looked down on the most, who had no social status, no standing. And Jesus now is identifying with them, taking off his outer garment, getting intimate. Like, if I take off my outer garment, you're going to see my, my pit stains. It's going to be disgusting. I tell you, it's warm up here. I sweat when I preach. And there, we just bonded over some intimacy. You know a little bit more about me. This is Jesus. I, I mean, I don't know how his body handled heat and temperature and all that, but he takes off his outer garment. This step of intimacy. Wraps his towel around his waist. Says, then he poured water into a basin. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we've seen the symbolism of Jesus pouring out water for the healing of the nations, for the cleansing of his people. It's all this imagery in the scriptures about baptism and water and how God cleanses us. Jesus pours water into a basin. And then he begins, verse 5, to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wrapped around him. Not like a secondary towel. He's like the towel that's wrapped around his waist. He's lost his outer garment, the towel around his waist. He's using that towel to wipe the disciples' feet. It's intimate. It's close. It's personal. He's taking the nature of a servant. In order to do that, he, he, he has to get vulnerable with them, and they have to get vulnerable with him. If you ever had someone wash your feet, it's kind of a weird experience. Like, there's a reason why we wear shoes and socks and, like, hide our feet. Many people are very insecure about their feet. It's an intimate experience, and Jesus is here doing that with his disciples. It says, um, verse 6, pick it up in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? We're going to talk more about Simon next week. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing to consider Peter's response and Judas's response. Let's consider it quickly, though. Simon Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like, the lowliest of the lows. And see the juxtaposition? Lord, master, you wash my feet? The master isn't supposed to wash the feet, the, the lowliest of lows of servants and slaves is supposed to wash the feet. Jesus said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I love that, right? Sometimes we have that response towards Jesus, like, no, Jesus, I'm here to serve you. Jesus is showing us that he builds agape community by serving us. This is amazing. Jesus has said in other places in the Gospels that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in our human nature, when we get a good gift, we want to return it, we want to repay it, we want to earn it. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is saying, there's a time and a place for you to sit and to receive from me. I have came to serve you. This is the posture. And, and Peter, right, like his religious reaction is to not receive it, to not receive what God has for him, to not receive what Jesus would do for him, but to try and earn his standing, earn his justification before Jesus. And, and also just, right, he kind of gets it actually, right? Like he, he's, in one sense, he's acknowledging that Jesus is greater, master, Lord, but in another sense, he's not understanding how Jesus is greater, that his way of loving is to serve, not to be served. It's to come underneath and lift other people up, not to come above and have them lift him up. 
And Jesus says to him, if, you do, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We'll go deeper on that statement next Sunday. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he, he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Again, we'll come back to this next week as we talk about Peter and, and Judas and kind of some of the nuance, the theology, the salvation theology that Jesus is getting into here. I want, what I want to leave us with today is this reminder that Jesus came to build community, a community of agape love, and he calls you and I to imitate him in that. And so if you want to help create a community of love, you have to be willing to get intimate and dirty and serve other people. You have to be willing to be vulnerable in front of them and with them. And you have to meet them in their vulnerability without disgust or disdain or shock or surprise. This is how community is built. And as we transition to communion this morning, I want to remind you that our salvation is not found by us doing these things perfectly, by eating with others, loving others, persevering with others, knowing who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and by serving. Right? That, that is a call. Jesus calls us to imitate him in that. But we have to remember here as we come to the table this morning that Jesus isn't only our example, he's also our substitute and our sacrifice. He's the one who in his own words comes to serve, not to be served. He's the one who draws us in and says, when you're reluctant, when you're disobedient, when you're either unwilling or unable to eat with your enemies, to love your enemies, to persevere with your enemies, to know who you are, you forget that. And when you're unable or unwilling to serve others, I came to do all of those things for you. And so you're forgiven because of me. And I came to come and do all of those things in and through you for others. But when you drop the ball, I'm picking it up. So that's why we run to the table, church family, to remember that Jesus is the one who dines with us in the midst of our own mess. He's the one who loves us in the midst of our own sin. He's the one who perseveres with us when we're slow to listen and learn. He's the one who gives us an identity and a destiny. And he's the one who serves and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I want to invite you to the table this morning to be reminded of that truth and motivated by the presence and person of Jesus Christ to go and do likewise. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for you. I thank you for the way that you serve us, the way that you love us. Lord, I pray that we would open up our hands this morning and receive your action towards us. That we would be willing to be vulnerable before you and receive your washing, your cleansing, receive your serving. And Lord, as we take communion this morning, I pray that it would be a reminder of who you are and what you've done. The bread representing your body given for us, the cup representing your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Nourish us now, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.